Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome everybody. My name's Kevin Varvel. I'm from the School of Physics at uh, the University of Sydney. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney has been built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So let me officially introduce uh, Peter. So Peter's Danish by origin, if you haven't picked that up from his accent. He completed a master's degree at Copenhagen University in 2001, and then he moved to Sweden to Lund University for his PhD, which he finished, I think, around 2004 or so. He then moved across the Atlantic to Fermilab, the uh, research institute just outside Chicago that he was just mentioning a little while ago for his first postdoctoral position, which uh, led him to getting a position as a tenure-track scientist uh, at Fermilab in about 2007, but then I believe he promptly headed off to CERN. (laughs) And in fact, he became a CERN staff scientist uh, in around about uh, 2009 where he was for about five years. We were fortunate then, uh, about 2014, that he moved to Australia and uh, became an associate professor at Monash University and an Australian Research Council future fellow. Peter would call himself a phenomenologist or a theorist. So uh, he's got an interest particularly in the strong force, which is called quantum chromodynamics in the jargon that particle physicists use. He also talks about being interested in virtual colliders. So that is, how do we actually sort of simulate the particles and the interactions that we see in the real world using computers? And Peter's a world expert on that. He's very well known in the field as one of the authors of something called Pythia, which is a toolkit that's used by almost every particle physicist who practices their profession in order to model the collisions that we see in our colliders. And he's also noted for promotion and very interested in promotion of particle physics to, to a broader audience. And that includes being one of the people who's, who pioneered sort of virtualization volunteer computing through something called LHC at home. I think uh, I used to know of something called SETI at home. And this is a similar sort of thing where people's cycles of their computer can be used to, to help analyze data, right? Um, simulate or, it, yeah. Uh, or simulate data, I should say, um, from the LHC. So I think that's enough of an introduction. He's already introduced himself in the unofficial part of the uh, proceedings, so I'd like to hand over to Peter to give his talk. So please welcome Peter Stan. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> and now for something completely different. Uh, so thanks to all of you for coming here tonight. Uh, and I, I hope you enjoyed the little uh, session before. I'm not too annoyed if you showed up here thinking that the talk would start at six. Anyway, it's starting now. 
and it's about the Large Hadron Collider, and some marketing people wanted to put in that word game changer, which is not one of my favorite words, so I uh, modified it slightly, how the game has changed since we switched it on in 2008. Um, but before we get to the hard science of the Large Hadron Collider, I want to take you on a tour of what it is and what it does, and some of the more recent things that we've seen with it. Um, here is a picture of one of the components of the Large Hadron Collider, the CMS detector. And believe it or not, the C stands for compact. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's rather big. Um, so before getting to the hard science, I wanted to take a step back from a more human perspective and ask people like this guy here, um, why do they do it? Why do they devote their lives? Ten years, took 10 years to build this thing. Um, and thousands of people collaborated uh, to make it. Why do they do it? Why do we do science? Um, and of course, lots of different reasons that one can uh, think of for why science is, is good to do. Um, knowledge is power, of course. We can uh, improve our standards of living with it. We can solve problems that we have in society with science. We can go bigger, better, faster, technological development. And of course, these are these are valid reasons uh, that we bring up, especially when we're trying to apply for funding. Um, but I suspect the real reasons for, for me and for many of my colleagues who've devoted their lives to science, and probably for many of you, your reason for showing up here tonight, are simple reasons of curiosity and fascination. The universe is a very big uh, and, and beautiful place, and it's full of things that we only partly comprehend. Uh, and that, for me at least, is, is the real reason that I, I always wanted to be... I, in fact, I wanted to be an astronomer, but then things took a different turn. Um, there's one other reason that I think science is important and has an important role to play in modern society, particularly in this age of, of misinformation and fake news. I think the quest for objective truth that we have in science, and that we check our facts and so forth, is a stabilizing influence and a force for civilization. Um, so I think science is a civilizing factor. Um, I, one of my favorite philosophers, I'm going to give you a quote of him, um, Hobbes, in his Leviathan, describes the state of mankind without civilization um, in a very bleak way. So we would have no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and the life of man would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And so on that lively note, uh, we will start this talk. So now that I have your attention, we can discuss high energy physics and particle physics. Why is particle physics synonymous with high energy physics? So of course we're interested in particle physics, in high energy physics, in the fundamental constituents of nature, the fundamental laws that govern everything in the universe or as much of it as we can possibly understand. So we want to see things that are tiny, that are fundamental, that everything else is made of. And to see things that are small in a quantum world, we need what's called short wavelength probes. So if you have a big ocean wave, it's not going to scatter off a pebble. You're not going to see in a pattern of, of scattered waves an ocean wave scattering off a pebble. But if you have things that are island-sized and you have wind patterns uh, flowing past them, then you can sort of see island-sized waves uh, in the, the wind patterns that you get out. And this is basically the game that we are playing at smaller and smaller wavelengths. So with island-sized waves, you can see islands. Uh, and to see things that are really, really small, the visible light can really only tell you about 
sort of biological systems. We need ultraviolet to resolve things that are the size of molecules. So we know that uh, light is made up of waves and there is a certain distance from one crest to the next and you can't see anything with a certain wavelength of light that's smaller than what your wavelength is for the same reason. And so uh, if we want to see things that are really, really small, these uh, fundamental constituents of matter that I'll get to in, in this talk, uh, then we need to have to get to very, very small wavelengths. Okay, so that's fine. We need small wavelengths. How do we get that? What do we need to resolve uh, a given wavelength with a single quantum, or a single particle, or a single proton that we hit on something? What do we need to make sure that we can resolve really tiny wavelengths? I think most of you in this audience know the famous E equals mc squared, which is usually the only equation that you're allowed to show in talks like this. But I'm going to be a little bit more adventurous, and I'm going to show you a very related uh, uh, formula, which is called the Planck-Einstein relation, and it tells you what the energy E equals for a photon, a quantum of light. And photons don't have any mass, so E isn't equal to mc squared for a photon. It's equal to Planck's constant times the frequency of the photon. The frequency of the photon is inversely proportional to its wavelength. So regardless of whether that tells you anything or not, if the maths is fine, that's, that's good. But even if it doesn't, what this equation says is in order to make this thing small, to get small wavelengths, we need to make this thing big. So to get short wavelengths, we need high energies. And that's why particle physics is synonymous with high energy physics. So if we imagine how do we think about a fundamental particle. How could we ascertain whether a quark or an electron or something like that is really a fundamental particle or whether it has some substructure inside that it's not the fundamental Lego block that we think it is? If we wanted to really make sure that it's a point particle, mathematically a point, we would need to use infinitely short wavelengths to find out that it doesn't have any extent at all. And as a theorist, one can consider infinitely short wavelengths in principle, but when we ask our experimental friends to build a device that can make infinitely short wavelengths, they point to this equation and say, we don't have infinite energy. So in the real world, of course, what we do is we get to the highest energy that we can. We kick particles as hard as we can, put as much energy into every single quantum as we can, and that's what accelerators do. Um, so that's why high energy physics, particle physics, accelerator physics. And the biggest accelerator lab of them all is CERN which is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. If you think the name doesn't quite match the acronym, you're right. Uh, this is from French, and it started to be a conseil, so a sort of a council for European uh, Recherche Nucléaire, and then it changed its name, but calling it E.O.N. wouldn't be a very good <laughs> thing. So the, so the acronym stuck. Um, so it's still called CERN. It's made up today of 22 European member states. So it's mainly founded in Europe, of course, in, in 1954, coming out of the war. And Europe wanted to uh, re-establish its presence in science and have a driver for, for European science. And this was one of the first joint ventures that were made in, in Europe uh, after the Second World War. Um, today there are, as I said, 22 European member states. And there are 60 other countries, so there's a, a list of them here. Um, this is really international research at the largest scale uh, involving this many uh, countries in a single endeavor. There is only one CERN on the planet, and by pooling the resources of all these countries and all these scientists and their man hours, that's the reason CERN is able to do exceptional things that no single nation could pull off. 
The closest rival was Fermilab in the States, um, but they also started becoming much more international towards the end of the run of their last accelerator, which has now been superseded by the Large Hadron Collider. So this is really a, a truly global endeavor. And the yearly budget that this conglomerate can pull together to do science for is about a billion Swiss francs, which the current exchange rate is something like 1.4 billion Australian dollars. So it's a lot of money that you can do a lot of research with. So what goes on at CERN? Well, the LHC is the flagship accelerator, of course. It's housed in a tunnel, 100 meter underground, and 27 kilometers long. So this is a visualization of one of the very first collisions in 2010 um, that were recorded. And then we get these beautiful patterns coming out. Uh, and what we've, our challenge is then to work out what actually happened inside. So that's what goes on at CERN. Um, but of course, where does it all start? To get proton beams, you need protons. And I wanted to take you through a tour that's not often shown. Where do we actually get the protons from? Well, we get them from a bottle of hydrogen gas. And this is one that they have on display, and I apologize for my friend being in the picture, but um, this, this is what you can see as a visitor. As I mentioned down here, this is actually a display one, but the, uh, the real one is right behind, and it's uh, just a big version of this one. Um, so that's, that's an ordinary bottle of hydrogen gas, hydrogen in molecular form, so H2 molecules. And there are two protons in there and two electrons, and so what you want to do is you want to split up these molecules and extract the protons and start kicking them. And the first stage of that process is something called a duoplasmatron, where uh, you have a hot cathode here uh, that boils off electrons, which have some kinetic energy because they're hot, and they hit these hydrogen molecules and they knock the electrons loose. So once you have that, you have sort of a plasma of electrons and protons that have been dissociated. You put a voltage drop over this, and the positive ones get expelled out the front, and the electrons sort of go towards the back. In this case, you're not interested in the electrons, but you end up getting some, some ions, some protons in this case, coming out the front end of this thing. Uh, and in the case of the LHC, uh, this thing has a starting voltage of about 90,000 volts. So that's the smallest number that we're going to encounter in this talk. That gives me an excuse to introduce a unit which I'm going to be using for the rest of the talk, which is called an electron volt. It's not as scary as it sounds. It's simply that if you have a charged particle and you have a potential drop from minus to plus or plus to minus, that particle, if it's an electron and you have something negative here, it'll get repelled. And if you have a potential drop of one volt, a unit charged particle will acquire a little bit of energy by being repelled from this negative side and attracted towards the positive side. And that amount of energy we call one electron volt. So it's the kinetic energy, the motion energy that you get if you have unit charge and you accelerate it through one volt. So it kind of measures, so you have a 90,000 volt difference here that will accelerate a proton up to 90,000 electron volts. Once you exit this dual plasmatron, of course, that's just the first stage, you enter something called a linear accelerator, which as the name implies is not a round one. Um, it goes in this end here and then it it go coasts down, this, the beam is coasting down this sequence of, of cylinders that you see here. Um, and what they do is they accelerate the beam further up, so it starts with an energy of these 90,000 electron volts. Um, and basically the principle of a linear accelerator is the same as I just mentioned. You have some potential drop, some, an electric field that's accelerating the protons. 
they're being repelled from a positive side and attracted to a negative side. Um, but to get to really high uh, energies, like 50 million volts, doing that with electrostatics is, is difficult um, and prone to having really big sparks fly around. So that's not how you do it. What you do is you have a cavity with an oscillating electric field. It's going back and forth. And then you, when it's oriented the right way, the protons are coming in and they're coasting on this wave of, of, the, of the field that's oscillating. And when the field is turned the wrong way, you have little shields in here. So the beam is inside these cavities there, inside, when the field is oriented the wrong way. So they're shielding the beam from being decelerated again. Otherwise, of course, nothing would happen. So you've timed the particle flow coming in exactly so that it's getting positive acceleration when it's in the gaps here in between, and then it's shielded when it's in the opposite configuration. And then it's just standing there oscillating and accelerating the beam. So that's a linear accelerator. But now the fun really begins. Of course, CERN has been in existence for uh, 60 plus years um, and built bigger and bigger accelerators over that time. So one big accelerator per decade. Uh, and instead of just dismantling them uh, after they've been used for what discoveries were done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they are basically all used as the first stage for the next bigger accelerator. So there's a whole daisy chain of accelerators that uh, exist at CERN, um, which have more and more fancy names, that basically keep taking this proton beam up and up and up in energy. So there's a proton synchrotron, which was built in 1959. This is one of the first machines at CERN. Uh, it's not that big, uh, sort of comparable in size to the Australian synchrotron. And it can take beams directly from this linear accelerator that we had. And it can also take beams that have already been pre-accelerated a bit. And output now, we are starting to talk about interesting numbers, 25 billion volts. This starts to be a beam that you don't really want to mess with or stand in the way of. Um, later on, this proton synchrotron booster was added just in to, to fill more beam in it. In the Q&A session before the talk, we were talking about what are the limiting factors. And one limiting factor is how many protons can you squeeze through this system per second. And so by having more rings here that helps to accelerate the particles part of the way, then you can put more particles inside this one and you can, you can generate more beam. So in making the beams more intense is a big part of trying to get these machines to work as optimally as possible. From this proton synchrotron, then uh, the next big machine was the super proton synchrotron, uh, which is now starts to be a decent size of itself. Seven kilometers is a pretty big machine. And this was used for discovery physics in its own right in the 80s. Um, so that outputs an equivalent a proton beam that has an equivalent energy each proton of, of having been accelerated through 450 billion volts. And then, of course, there is the last, the last waypoint. Um, the maximum energy of this superproton synchrotron is 450 GeV. And finally, the beams are then transferred to the Large Hadron Collider, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, has a circumference of 27 kilometers. After that happens, we sit around and wait for uh, the accelerator guys to declare stable beams. And the first stable beams uh, for 2018 happened in April. So there's also an answer to the question about how quickly we restart after winter. This uh, happened in, in April this year at a collision energy of 13,000 billion volts equivalent. So that's a lot. I mean, that's just an arbitrary number, right? It's um, for, for comparison, what can we compare this number to? It's about a million times higher than the energies involved in nuclear fusion. 
Um, so nuclear, normal nuclear processes, which are sort of the highest energy processes that we uh, know of in our daily lives, are about a million times lower than this. So this is really high energy. Uh, it's also twice the energy we had when the so-called Higgs boson was discovered a few years ago, and I'll, I'll allude to that uh, in a moment. Uh, and we have much more intense beams. So that's where we've, we've gone since the Higgs discovery. Uh, we now have twice the energy and, and much more intensity in the beams, so we're collecting data more rapidly. So what do we see? We see things like this when the beams actually collide. Uh, so here the two beams are coming in, and we see all this spray of particles coming out uh, that we have to try to make sense of. Here's a projection of what it looks like end on. Um, <coughs> and this is a collision actually from earlier this year. So this is one of the things that one of the first collisions from stable beams this year. So that, that's an actual event. And Okay, how, what, what can you conclude from a picture like this? Not much. We look at millions of them and analyze them statistically. But one question you can immediately ask looking at a picture like this is, why does it look so messy? Why, why is it, we have two particles colliding, shouldn't they just sort of bounce off each other and, and then they come out at some angle? Why, why all this mess uh, that we see um, in the collider? So to answer that, we'll take a look at what we are really colliding. We are colliding protons, and I guess most of you may think of protons as you know, elementary particles. Um, and some textbooks will show them with having you know, a couple of quarks inside, three of them, two up quarks and a down quark. But if we look at the quantum level at what actually is inside a proton, what we see is that, sure, there are two up quarks and a down quark, but there's also the force fields that's making them stick together inside the proton, which are called gluons. And there are quantum fluctuations of these particles, so they're constantly um, emitting and reabsorbing radiation, uh, emitting and reabsorbing gluons, and gluons can spit into new quark-anti-quark -quark pairs. So if you look inside a proton at a high enough resolution scale, you can find almost anything in there because of quantum fluctuations. Um, so what we actually see when we look inside a particle like the proton is we see an ever-repeating self-similar pattern of quantum fluctuations. So we can keep zooming into this structure and find fluctuations inside fluctuations inside fluctuations at smaller and smaller distance scales. So that's, to our best knowledge, what an elementary particle really looks like, fluctuations inside fluctuations. That's a quantum picture of what they look like. Um, and of course, nature makes copious use of structures like that, repeating patterns at different distance scales. They're called fractals. Um, and in mathematics, they generate very beautiful patterns. And so actually, uh, the, the proton has uh, a fractal structure inside it, which is part of what we find when we collide these things. We're actually colliding fractals together or something that looks very much like fractals. Um, so that's, I just think that's a very beautiful thing uh, that, that helps me think about the physics that's going on inside them. So protons are actually quite interesting on the inside. We can simulate the pattern of those fluctuations by putting what's called quantum field theory, the combination of quantum mechanics and special relativity, uh, quantum field theory, on supercomputers. It's too hard to solve by hand, but we can actually write computer simulations that will solve the equations. And so here is uh, some, some, a nice visualization written by um, a colleague at Adelaide who actually specializes in these things. And he's put space-time on a little uh, grid that's a bit bigger than a proton. So the size of this is you could sort of fit a proton comfortably inside, but not much more. Uh, and you're seeing all these blobs that are doing something. 
the interesting thing about this particular simulation that he, did, that he did was that he put nothing in the box. There is nothing there. This is empty space. It's a simulation of uh, quantum fluctuations in vacuum. So empty space, if you're a quantum field theorist, looks like that. And then you're taking these two fractal structures that you have and smacking them together on top of that, and now you have to calculate what's going to come out of that. That's the challenge, and that's why mathematically it's sometimes a little bit difficult. So we have some, some help. Uh, there are some things that we can use to simplify these calculations. So if we think about these fluctuations, these quantum fluctuations inside the proton, uh, what's their lifetime? How long do they last? What's the speed of this movie? I didn't tell you how quickly it was going. Um, so the lifetime of a typical fluctuation in the proton, well, how long does it take a ray of light to cross from one side of a proton to the other? That's a good measure for how long these fluctuations can live. Uh, how long does it take at speed of light to cross a proton? Not very long, right, because it's very fast and the proton is very small. So it gives something like 10 to the minus 23 seconds, which is, of course, a, a ridiculous number, um, which I've translated to another ridiculous number, which is 500 billion terahertz. So that's how many times a ray of light could bounce around inside a proton in one second. Um, so that sounds like these fluctuations are really fast. They are, it, this, this fluctuation is happening at an incredibly fast time scale. But the magic is that to the LHC, that's slow. The LHC is taking pictures with a resolution or looking at time slices which are extremely short compared even with this. So if we take this relation that we had before for the energy of a photon and its relation to the frequency and we convert the energy of the LHC to a frequency. This is much larger than that. So the LHC is basically a camera, these collisions that we have, that has a shutter speed, which is much, much faster than the scale of these fluctuations is. So the LHC basically takes instantaneous snapshots of what the proton structure looks like. It's seeing a proton that is looking frozen in time. These fluctuations are happening at slow motion for this kick that we suddenly get it, give it when we hit it with the other proton. Um, so they look frozen, that's good. That means I don't have to deal with all this fluctuation stuff. I can simplify it and just think about a frozen proton. Um, but this frozen proton has a lot more than just three quarks inside it. Um, so this is very hard to calculate, but we can use statistics to parameterize the structure of the proton. That's in fact what we do. So when we look at this frozen picture of the proton, I can parameterize the structure and say, every so-and-so often I'll pick a quark, every so-and-so often I'll pick a gluon with a certain fraction of the energy. And we can measure that using uh, experiments at previous colliders that we already have run in the past. So once we've measured these functions, we know what the proton structure looks like. And then we can use that to compute basically the probability of everything that could possibly happen that these partons that we call them could do, every possible quark and gluon reaction. Um, and compare that with what the experiments say that they see, now that we know how, how often we should see every type of reaction. And that's, in fact, part of the work that I do um, at Monash, is writing computer codes that calculate all these probabilities and model what's happening. So a thing that recently excited us about the LHC data, just an example of that, is uh, around 2015 or so, uh, I was part of a small team of researchers that proposed to do a new set of measurements to test a, a fundamental property of the strong nuclear force. So that's the strongest force of nature that we know of. Um, and we wanted to see if we could make it even stronger. Uh, so um, 
we posed the question whether the, the fraction of strange particles, which is a type of, of particle related to nuclear matter, but strange matter, um, whether this fraction of these particles that come out that are strange is just a universal constant, it's always the same, or whether it depends on how violent the collisions are. And maybe in very violent collisions, the rates would go up and it would be evidence of, the, of this force becoming even stronger than it normally is. So to answer that question, to see why that makes sense, we can ask, well, how do we actually turn these two colliding protons into hundreds of outgoing particles? I wanted to show you what we actually think is happening there. As you know, many of you know, I hope, is these, these quarks, uh, and gluons for that matter, are confined inside particles like protons. So they always live inside these hadrons, we call them, protons. Um, and they're, they're pulled back by very strong force fields if they try to escape. But now what happens if we kick one of them really hard? So we take an up quark there, for instance, and we kick it as hard as we can, um, and it, it's going to go out of the proton and, and go somewhere else. Right? So it's going to go over there, for instance. And uh, so now these have been separated by much more than they normally like to be separated by, because the proton likes to have its, its normal size. What happens when you yank out a quark of a proton, which is exactly what we do in the experiments, is that an ultra-strong force field, the strongest force field we know of in nature, uh, forms between these fragments. So there's a very strong, not quite an elastic band, we call it a string, that forms between these fragments. Um, and that carries a lot of energy. In fact, it carries so much energy that new particles can be created from the vacuum to break it. So there's enough energy in here to create new quark-antiquark pairs that can screen these two ends from each other in a process we call fragmentation. That, that's something that I specialize in, in trying to understand. Uh, we can't calculate it from first principles, so it's something that we use models for. So if I can break this string or this strong force field by creating new particles in between these two, then stretching out this elastic and it chops into a bunch of, of little ones, each of which is a particle. So now I've turned one particle into many by kicking one of the things out and then seeing this thing fragment into lots of them. They're coming out of the vacuum like popcorn. Um, so that's, that's the process that the field energy is converted to masses, E equals mc squared, of new quark-antiquark pairs. And the thing about strange quarks is that they're a little bit heavier than the up and down quarks. So if they're a little bit heavier, I need more energy to produce them. And if I need more energy to produce them, that means that they're produced less often in this field. So normally we see strange quarks being suppressed by a ratio of one to three or so uh, is the, the ratio of strange quarks. We normally see just because it requires a bit more energy to produce them, so they're not produced as frequently. So we wanted to know if violent collisions where I really see lots of particles coming out um, produced higher strength fields, so even higher than this highest field strength that we know of normally. The smoking gun would be that we should be increasing the fraction of strange particles, because if we have a higher field strength, then providing the energy to, to these strange quarks to, become, to get their mass becomes easier. Um, so it would imply that we simply have more energy squeezed into each space-time volume, and it makes it easier to produce higher mass pairs. Um, so that was something that we proposed through an experiment, and they did it, and they saw it, uh, and it, it made the cover of nature physics, which is kind of okay in particle physics uh, terminology. Of course, this is not me, this is the experiment, right? But I'm, I'm happy that I was part of encouraging them to do that um, measurement. So they've, they've done the measurement as a function of how many particles are coming out, and indeed they see that the, the, 
there's more and more strange particles coming out. Uh, so that's, that's the jackpot, and it, it's really exciting for us right now. We're trying, now of course we have an explanation problem because why did we have that hunch? It really was kind of just a hunch. Um, so now we actually have to, to build some real physics models that can try to explain the data, uh, which, which my PhD student is working hard on, and, and there's competition, so, so he's not getting a lot of sleep these days. Um, but if we talk about headlines, of course, there are a few headlines that can rival those, at least in physics terms, that appeared around the discovery of the Higgs boson. So, so here's one of my favorites, right? Origin of universe revealed. I think that is possibly an example of media hype gone a little <laughs> bit the extra step, um, but, it, but it at least it's, it's, it's good fun, and it showed um, the excitement that was going on. Uh, I, I don't think any physicist would have uh, signed off on that statement. Um, but it, it was a really momentous discovery. It was amazing to, to see this uh, and to be, to be part of it. I was at CERN at the time. But the, uh, the announcement was actually made during a conference that took place here in Australia. So uh, we also had a first seat to, uh, to this discovery. So I want to spend a little time talking about that discovery. And what I really wanted to, to talk about to share with you today a bit was what's happened with the LHC since the Higgs discovery, because it was in the headlines then, and, and what has happened since. But I think you deserve an explanation of what, why this Higgs boson made everybody so excited. Um, it's connected with a really fundamental question uh, in nature. What is mass? What gives particles mass? Why, why do things have you know, E equals mc squared, the energy we understand, the mass not so much? And the explanation that the standard model, the, the picture of the physical laws that we have, uh, gives for what mass uh, really, how it arises in what's called the standard model, is, is the following. So if you consider something that I call a field, uh, it's evenly distributed across the universe, and it's completely uniform, and it doesn't have any orientation, there's no polarization to it. So imagine that there is some non-zero field uh, everywhere. So it's not exactly like if there was an electric field everywhere, because electric fields have directions. But you can think of it a little bit in that way, if there was some analogy to an electric field that doesn't have a direction everywhere. So you put that field in your universe, and now you have your particles that are zooming around in the universe, and you imagine that some of them couple to this field, some of them interact with it, some of them experience this field as being there. And to other particles, it's completely translucent or transparent. They don't interact with it at all. So uh, that's a situation that we can set up, that uh, we postulate that the photon doesn't experience this field at all, uh, but for instance an electron or a proton will interact with this field. And then suppose that this field that we have condenses around the particles which couple to it, a little bit like how drops condense in the atmosphere around grains of, of dust, so raindrops. Um, that there is this, this uh, field that condenses around particles that couple to it, and that causes then this condensation of the field and increased energy density around those particles, they act as seeds for this field to condense, and that looks just like mass, this increased energy density. So you're converting this interaction energy between the particles in the field into something that looks like mass, and we call that field the H field, or there's several people that receive the Nobel Prize, but usually we just say Higgs, but there are, there are more people that can claim to have had that idea. Um, and, and so that's a nice hypothesis, but how do you know that's has anything to do with how nature makes mass. Okay, that was a nice little fable. How do we know it has anything to do with the real world? If this little story is true, uh, it makes one spectacular prediction, which is sort of the, the smoking gun. It should be possible, if there is such a field, 
to make waves in that field itself without having a dust grain, without having a particle, another particle there, but to actually make an excitation, we call it, in this field itself. If it's there, we should be able to hit it and excite a resonance in it um, to make a little wave of just Higgs stuff. So the prediction was from this mechanism that there should be some sort of, some resonant energy if we hit with exactly the right energy, um, we should be able to make a sort of quasi-stable, we call it, excitation of the field, which we call the Higgs boson. So there's the Higgs field, which is this thing that everything couples to. What we call the Higgs boson is this excitation or this little um, drop of pure Higgs stuff um, that it should be possible to produce if the Higgs field is really the mechanism that gives mass to everything. Unfortunately, so that's good, right? But it didn't tell us what that energy would be. So the equations weren't powerful enough to tell us that's the energy that you should use. So we had to build a number of experiments to look for this thing before the LAC finally found it. Um, and the fact that it's quasi-stable means that you, you don't produce this drop of Higgs stuff and then it goes off and hits your detector or does something like that. It decays very quickly into other particles again. So you're creating this little thing, it holds together for a moment and then disappears incredibly quickly. Um, but you should be able to detect it via the things that it dissolves into. It has a, some unique signatures which were then uh, eventually found. So that's what was discovered, a particle consistent with these properties um, that was announced at, at CERN on, on the 4th of July in, in 2012. And the energy turned out to be 125 billion electron volts. So what has happened since then in the last six years, we now have more than uh, 10 times the data that we had at that time, and we have more data coming in since we are running as we speak. What that means is that we can examine the quantum properties of this new particle that we've seen. So now that we've seen the particle and we can produce it again in the LHC and we are producing it again, we can check whether, so the mass was really the last remaining free parameter in this theory. Now that we know the mass, we know everything else. Everything else is a prediction, if the laws of nature are the way we think they are. So it should decay to bottom quarks this often, it should decay to muons that often, and so on and so forth. All of that can now be calculated. And we can check if it does all those things or if it looks weird. And of course, we are, we're hoping that it looks weird. Uh, there are many reasons to think that it, it should look weird. Um, and one of the sort of disappointments to us that has happened is that actually the theory is working incredibly well. We haven't seen any major deviations from this sort of simplest Higgs scenario that uh, this mechanism that I just described with nothing else going on. That's a bit surprising, but it's, it's, it's a major puzzle in particle physics right now. A lot of us thought, or hoped, that the Higgs would discovery would just be the first of many discoveries that we would see a plethora of new phenomena associated with the Higgs. And the fact that we've only seen the Higgs and nothing else so far is mysterious. It's a hard thing to, to speculate about because you, you're speculating on an absence of of indications to the contrary. But that's the major puzzle, and that is the reason why the LHC has not been so much in the headlines since the Higgs discovery. It doesn't mean that nothing is going on, but so far, most of it agrees with the laws of nature as we know them with the Higgs particle in them. There were some headlines in 2016 that you might have heard about, um, which was on, on Friday, April 29th, uh, a stone marten, which is an animal that resembles a, a weasel, jumped into a, a substation at the LHC and tripped a 20,000-volt converter or something like that. And it actually turned off power to the entire accelerator complex. Um, so, And, of course, the weasel didn't come out of it 
uh, <laughs> looking that good. Um, but it was instructive, so it's, it's not just a joke. Uh, it was instructive because it also it tested what happens if you just switch off, if there is a power fault, if you switch off power to the LHC, um, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is Newton's going to take over, right? So if you have a, a, a particle beam with a lot of energy in it that's going around in a circle and your magnets switch off, then you have something that's going to go very fast in a straight line uh, instead. And, and so that's not good because there's a lot of energy stored in these beams. In fact, did I have that already there? Oh, yeah. So it's here, right, already. So when we fully loaded the LHC, the total stored energy in it is equivalent to, I, I think the HMAS Canberra is the biggest ship in the Australian Navy, moving at 13 knots. So, so that's what's going to hit you, all your delicate, sensitive equipment that's lined up all around the ring. Um, so, so that's really not good. Um, so, of course, this is foreseen. It's not like they were going, oh, oops, this wasn't supposed to happen. Um, so the, the magnets are superconducting, which means that even if you switch off the power to the magnets, the current will still circulate for a while, um, and there's enough stored energy and backup power to make the beam basically go one full, what we call a turn of the accelerator, to go one full turn around. And then there is an ejection point that you still have enough power to kick the beam out, and then there is a, a beam stop, which is some big block of thing that's angled and the beam just spills down there. Um, which becomes an unpleasant sight because it's very radioactive afterwards. Um, so that, that worked fine, and uh, there was no damage done to the accelerator complex during this event. Okay, so now that we have found the Higgs boson and, and we're studying the heck out of it, but it's still looking pretty normal, um, is that the last piece of the puzzle? Um, in the 100 years since we had the periodic table of the elements that we use in chemistry, physics has then reduced this whole table of nuclei and atoms into just a few ultra-fundamental constituents and then the forces that act between them. So we have these up and down quarks that form neutrons and protons. We have electrons that form the atomic clouds, photons that mediate um, electromagnetic interactions, the other nuclear forces, and heavier cousins of these particles that we know that form part of stable matter. Here's the strange quark that I was talking about earlier. It's the heavier cousin of the down quark. So this is extremely simple. As far as we know, apart from gravity, this explains all the phenomena that we have seen to date, at least all the phenomena that we've seen with the Large Hadron Collider. And this is an astounding simplicity. So is there something beyond? That's, of course, the big million-dollar or billion-dollar question now. Uh, and there are lots of reasons to believe that there is something, that this can't be the full picture. Actually, it's mathematically inconsistent with itself, so it cannot be the full picture. There are evidences we have from dark matter and matter versus antimatter asymmetries that I'll talk a little bit about now, uh, if I have time, um, to show you what we know and why we still think that um, there's a good chance that the LHC is going to hit on new discoveries. It may already have seen some indications which I'll um, allude to at the very end of the talk. So what we know at the current stage that doesn't fit with the laws of nature that we've written down in this thing called the standard model of particle physics. What phenomena have we observed that don't fit with it? Well, one thing is that everything I just described will fill up about 4.6% of the energy budget of the universe. So what I just talked about can account for about 5% of what we know is in the universe which is not a great score. You know, we'd like to be somewhere near 
90% at least, you know. Um, so, so there's a lot more stuff in the universe that we cannot accommodate. Nothing in the standard model seems uh, able to explain. And that is certainly something that um, the LHC has a chance to see if it has a particle nature and if it interacts with the particles that, if it interacts with protons, proton beams that the LHC is made of. How do we know that dark matter must exist? So here's the physics lesson uh, that you're going to get in this talk. Uh, rotation curves. Um, some of you who know about dark matter, this will already be known to you. But So what's a rotation curve? When we talk about dark matter, we always talk about rotation curves. If you have a rigid body, like a propeller or a bicycle wheel, you have a graph of how quickly something is going around the central point as a function of the distance to the central point. So you can measure out here, you can measure in there, which is linear. So a point close to the bicycle axis is going slower and something out here is going faster and that makes the whole thing turn like a rigid body. So that's a linear curve. Of course, in gravitationally bound systems, what we tend to see is our Keplerian systems, uh, Kepler motion, where this velocity, if you work it out, it goes like one over the square root of the distance. So Mercury zips around the sun at 48 kilometers a second, and Neptune is pacing much more slowly around the sun. And that's what we see in gravitational systems. So we'd expect to see something similar uh, to this, the solar system model in a galaxy, there would be a rise in the beginning in the sort of close to the galactic center because a lot of the mass is still being accumulated as we go out. Um, but at some point, we would expect this Keplerian motion to take over and this thing should start showing a, a decline like something like this when we have test masses all the way out here and they should just see the central potential and behave like planets do. But what we actually see is when we observe galaxies, how fast they're rotating, that these rotation curves look much more like they're becoming constant at large distances. And that's totally unexplained um, from the amount of visible stuff that we can see in our telescopes. So here's a picture of a galaxy and an axis. We can actually see things very far away from uh, the galactic center by using something called the 21 centimeter line, which is a thing in radio astronomy. Um, but what we see, if we just look at the stuff we can see, the gas and the stars that are in this galaxy, and we do Newton, Newton's equations on it for gravity, or if we're very sophisticated, we do Einstein's equations for gravity on it, how fast would we expect things to be going around in this galaxy? That's this dotted curve here. That's what we expect from what we can see in telescopes. What we actually see are these points here. So there's something that is making these stars go around much quicker than they're supposed to. So these galaxies should have unwound long time ago if, if there wasn't more mass. They're going way too fast. They should have just spiraled away, but they're still there. And if we look out here, it just gets worse and worse. There's a huge difference between what we expect and what we see. Um, and that's one of the, uh, that was one of the first evidences that for that something else. Of course, you can, you can fix this if you put a lot of matter there that you can't see. You increase the gravity, the thing can go around quicker. So that's sort of a quick fix for, for this, saying, well, there must be some, a lot of matter that we don't see, but there must be a lot of it, five times more than there is of the matter that we can, that we can see. And there are other indications that point in the same direction that I'm not going to go into detail about in this talk. But if we look at how galaxies are formed in the early universe, colleagues that make computer simulations of how the early universe starts forming lumps and that lumps becomes galaxies and so forth, 
if you don't put dark matter in those simulations, then you don't get enough galaxy formation, and the universe doesn't have very many galaxies in it when you get to our time. Um, if you put dark matter in it, then, as I said, there's a factor of five more dark matter. So actually, our picture of structure formation in the early universe is the dark matter clumped together first, and then they, that acted as seeds for the galaxy formations that, that we can see. So it wasn't the other way around. Dark matter started lumping together, and then a galaxy formed where the dark matter was. It was pulling everything in. So dark matter seems to be essential to explain structure formation. And there's another effect that we can look for, which is when galaxies collide and we see the aftermath of it. We can look, two galaxy clusters are colliding here, head on, and there are some background stars. And if we look at those background stars, that their light gets bent by this galaxy cluster here because of gravitational lensing of the light. So we can look for these effects of gravitational distortion of what the background field looks like. And the more gravity you have here, the more you bend the rays from, from behind. So you can actually, using that, you can get a map of where the gravity is. So you can sort of measure, okay, where do I see little points of light? Where do I have the visible mass? And then using this lensing effect, you can measure where is the gravity. And they don't agree. So when we look at this, uh, it looks like the, the gravity or the, the sources of gravity passed straight through these collisions, didn't stop in the middle, but most of the mass that we can see got stopped in the middle. So something else passed straight through, carried most of the gravity with it. What is it? It's not something that we can see, so that's another indication of, of dark matter being there. Another thing that we know uh, exists is matter exists. We're made of matter, not antimatter. Um, and in the early universe, we uh, believe that matter and antimatter almost annihilated each other. So there were equal amounts to start with. They annihilated each other and became uh, photons that we see in the cosmic microwave background radiation that you may have heard of. Um, but there was a little bit of matter left over. And what we see today is about one in a billion. So every matter particle, for every billion photons in the cosmic microwave background, there was one matter particle left over. And, and that's what we are made of. Um, the standard model the laws of nature that we know of can't actually explain that. So the laws of nature that, that we have do actually, they are slightly different between matter and antimatter. There's a slight difference between how uh, the standard model or the laws in the standard model treat matter and antimatter. It's called CP violation. It was discovered in 1964, so it's well established. and There's a Nobel Prize for it in 1980. Um, but the difference that we see, this one in a billion, is actually much larger the difference that the standard model would predict is far too small uh, to explain the observed dominance of matter over antimatter. So the, the standard model would predict something like 1 to 10 to the 20 rather than 1 to 10 to the 9. So there should have been much less matter left over according to the standard model. So something else must exist, some other law of nature that distinguishes much more between matter and antimatter than what the standard model does. And we don't know what it is. Well, could we escape this reasoning? Could we say, ah, but maybe we are made of matter, but the Andromeda galaxy is made of antimatter or something like that. And then, you know, the, the, the amounts come out to be the right amounts in the end, and uh, we just haven't annihilated with them yet. Actually, we are on a collision course with them, so that would be spectacular in the future. Uh, <laughs> so could we be living in some sort of matter pocket with other antimatter pockets around? Um, and here, here, here we are. The answer to that is actually no. 
How do we know that? Well, I mean, we haven't been able to send detectors to Andromeda to check if uh, it's made of matter or antimatter, of course. Um, but, but empty space isn't all that empty. Uh, so there's always gas and other things flying around. I've mentioned already that clusters of galaxies collide from time to time. And if there was any one region that was made of matter and another region that was made of antimatter, we should see evidence of matter-antimatter annihilations happening at, at the borders between those regions and when things collide. And we see absolutely no indication of that. It's a very specific signature. You get photons with a very specific energy. We don't see it. So it's not a viable possibility that uh, the Andromeda galaxy is made of antimatter, which is good for us when we eventually collide with it. Um, there's other things that are more mathematical. So, so far I've discussed observational evidence. We know that matter is here. Yes, it is. Uh, and we know that dark matter is there. Pretty sure of that. There are people trying to get away with modifying the gravity equations instead, how they work at large distances. But that would mostly involve some sort of new physics, certainly beyond the standard model as well. Um, then there is this question of, of why are we so annoyed at the Higgs boson being so normal? Why is that such a problem? And it, it, it annoys theoretical physicists a lot because when we try to guess what the Higgs boson mass should be, we get the answer about a factor of 10 to the 16 wrong. And, and you know, that's an educated guess, right? Uh, so so that's, that's not so good. So the background to that, it's a mathematical problem. It's not really, I mean, it, the observational evidence is that we've seen that the Higgs boson has the mass that it does. Um, and so it, it's not, 10 to the 19, it's you know, 125 or whatever. So the problem with the Higgs is hard to explain. It involves tough mathematics, but I'm going to have a go at it uh, in a pedestrian way. So here I have a Higgs boson that's going from a point A to point B, propagating through the universe happily. Um, and it, so I can compute some sort of probability for this Higgs boson to propagate from one uh, side to the other. And that will depend on the mass of the Higgs boson, this amplitude. But since I'm in quantum field theory, things can fluctuate. And Higgs bosons, all particles, we already talked about the, the proton when we look inside it, has all these fluctuations inside. Same thing when we look at a Higgs boson. It should be some sort of quasi-fractal structure of fluctuations inside fluctuations. So when we compute the probability for the Higgs to go from here to here, we also have to say, well, include the possibility that it spent a little time looking like something else. Some particle-antiparticle pair that it fluctuated into, spent a little time looking like that, and then annihilated again and proceeded on its merry way. According to you know, the experiment, we prepared a Higgs boson here, we measured it here, this thing has to be summed together with that thing. Um, the problem with that is that when we, so this is what's called a quantum correction calculate this, you're sort of calculating the classical probability, and here you start talking about quantum corrections to that. This gives a quantum correction to the mass, the effective mass of the Higgs. This second diagram basically resets the effective mass of the Higgs to be whatever the mass of this other particle is. Um, so I can't make the Higgs boson mass stable, I can't just put in a number and say, oh, I want it to be 125. Because if I start putting other particles in my theory that couples to the Higgs, then they will reset the Higgs mass via this mechanism to be whatever their mass is. So the problem with that is really if there is some sort of new particle physics going on at very high scales, then that would couple to the Higgs boson. And then we would guess that the, the natural mass scale for the Higgs boson should be that scale, whatever the scale of the heaviest particle 
in nature is, which could be some Planck scale thing, which is a very large number, and of course the measured mass is a very small number. So that's a problem because our theory seems to be a little bit inconsistent. It's not, can't just say that the Higgs mass is whatever it is, it's not stable against these quantum corrections. Um, so there are ways of stabilizing the Higgs mass, which I'm not gonna go into detail because I'm gonna wrap up. Um, but these fluctuations come with signs. And one of the most appealing ways of stabilizing it is to say that you could have a, a symmetry that every fluctuation you have with a positive sign, there's another fluctuation that has a negative sign. And they just beautifully cancel each other. And that idea is, is, uh, is part of what's, what's called supersymmetry. If you've heard of that concept, that's one of the appealing things that supersymmetry do for you. It produces uh, fluctuations of opposite signs to the Higgs mass, so it stabilizes the Higgs mass. Okay, so we can make better guesses for this Higgs mass, but they're all based on new principles. Supersymmetry is not the only one, there's other possibilities out there. We don't know which one is correct. But if any of them are correct, then at some point we should start seeing the Higgs boson do something else than what it's supposed to do in the standard model. We should start seeing the effects of these additional loops or whatever, that it's starting to look a bit weird. As long as it just looks like a standard model Higgs boson, we don't have any evidence for these things other than that it's mathematically uncomfortable to guess that it should be 10 to the 16 bigger than it is. It could just be an accident, it would be a hell of an accident. Um, so it's called fine tuning and, and it's a known as a fine tuning problem. The other thing we have going for us, of course, is that it's still early days for the LHC. So we have been running, uh, so here we started 2011 and how much luminosity, how many size of the collected data sample that they got every year and 2018 is looking to be a really good year. Uh, so it's shooting up very nicely there. Uh, and as we were briefly mentioning in the introduction when we were doing a little bit of Q&A, um, there are plans for running the LHC for at least 10 more years to generate a data sample that's sort of a factor of 50 at least bigger than what we have now. So that's a, a, real, um, a real gain and there could be new discoveries in that. What it means for us is that it's, it's not gonna be easy. There's not gonna be a lot of low-hanging fruit and new particles that are just pouring out over us and easy to discover. It's gonna be really hard needle in a haystack kind of proposition where we will have to compare theory to experiment at a very detailed level. Um, so that's, that's where we are now and we're trying to develop the tools and techniques, mathematics to solve the predictions to a higher precision so that more precise experimental measurements can be compared and we can look for smaller deviations uh, between the theory and the data than, than what we have been able to do so far. There's one last hint, uh, which is exciting. Uh, I don't know whether it is anything yet, uh, maybe 50-50, uh, I don't know what odds will give it. Uh, but that's something that came up rather recently. Here's an event reconstructed by one of the uh, LHC experiments called LHC-B. And it produces these particles called B mesons, which you don't need to know what they are. They are short-lived, they decay, and here you see it decaying into some other particles, pion, kaon, and an electron-positron pair. And that's what it looks like. This is just them showing off, saying that they, can, they have really good resolution, uh, that they can see these things very, very clearly. So they believe they know what they're doing. It's a firm prediction of the standard model that this type of decay, where it decays to an electron-positron pair, should happen exactly as often as having a muon-antimuon pair there instead of the electron. And of course, they can look for both things, and they can check whether this happens exactly the same uh, amount of times. So if they see exactly the same number of events doing 
with an electron as with a muon pair. That's called lepton universality because electrons and muons are both leptons. And in the standard model, the laws of nature that are embodied there, it doesn't treat electrons and muons differently. So the ratio has to be one. It's a very firm prediction of the standard model. And this is what they measured. So in April 2017, they would, this is the predicted value for this ratio of muons to electrons, which should be one. And they seem to see something that's quite different from one, which is a bit exciting. Something it looks like it's making a difference between electrons and muons that could potentially be informing us about some interesting new physics, as we call it. But as you see, the error bars are still large. So there are some, some error bars on these, and that means that this could be a fluctuation that maybe the next measurement will end there, and the next measurement will be end there, and so forth. So these things come and go. We call them anomalies. And there's not enough statistical power in this yet to convince a particle physicist. We talk about something called five sigma, which is a very strong level of, of not being accidental. Uh, this could still just be a fluctuation, but it's, it's definitely interesting that all of these things seem to agree. And there are complementary measurements of similar things, which also look funny. Uh, and so I apologize, but our experimental friends like to put everything in a plot. And, and so this thing is, is very busy. It's sort of full disclosure. Um, but where this thing measures basically bottom quarks transitioning into strange quarks, that's, that's what this measures, together with electrons and muons. This thing is sensitive to bottom quarks transitioning into a different kind of quark, charm quarks. But you can sort of see that these things might be related. All you need to know about these plots is that the standard model, everything that we know so far, claims to predict that you should see these values here when this bottom quark decays to either a charm meson or an excited charm meson. They've measured both things. It ends up here. This is what they've measured. And there is some distance between these things, which is interesting. It means that the measurement result does not look like what the prediction should. And it's sort of tantalizingly related to this stuff here. So whether that's something, or in a few years we'll say, oh, that was you know, the fluctuation of 2018, I don't know yet. Uh, but follow-up measurements are certainly eagerly awaited. And that's actually some research that's going on right here in Sydney. Um, Sydney University is taking part in an experiment called Bell 2. They reached out to their international collaborators in Japan and a big laboratory called KEK, where they also have accelerators. Um, and so uh, Sydney is, is uh, part of the uh, Bell 2 collaboration, the international collaboration that builds and runs the experiments. And they had first collisions in, in early this year. So this experiment is actually running now and will measure some of these things. You can see its predecessor, Bell, um, is already on this plot. But they'll get 50 times more data than Bell did. So they will be able to do something completely uh, independent of the LHC experiment. So it'll be a completely independent test whether you see the same thing in an electron-positron collider in Japan as you see in a proton collider uh, in Switzerland. Okay, so this is definitely something that's, that's interesting to follow, and I'll, I'll finish with that. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.